You know, six months ago, I talked about how in the last hundred years or so, an interesting thing has happened as life expectancy has extended. And it has created a unique time in history that has never existed before so that there are five generations that all live together. Five different generations. And you, whoever you are this morning, fit into one of those five generations. Remember that? They, come, they get different names. Uh, we'll put them up here and just figure out where you fit up there. Just look at the birth year. Generation Z is if you're born between uh, 1999 and 2015. There is, in fact, a whole nother generation, age seven and below, starting to be identified as Generation Alpha, just so you know that's coming up. Uh, millennials. Millennials were born between 84 and 98, so if you're 24 to 38 this morning, you are a millennial. All kinds of things get said about you for being a millennial. You can't help it. You were born that way, right? Generation X, busters, born between 65 and 83. That's us, age 39 to 57. Boomers, born between 46 and 64. You are age 58 to 76. If you are older than 76 this morning, you fit into that fifth generation called the builders or the elder generation. That means you were born before 1946. Now, depending on what generation you're a part of, your life has been influenced by your generation. You grew up through specific things that were happening in history, wars and developments and things like that, seasons that shaped you. You grew up in a certain culture, so if you're a millennial or a Generation Z, for instance, I tried this this morning, you probably didn't know who George Jetson is, right? That was a test. You may not have ever heard of George Jetson. Why not? Well, because you're a certain generation. And in some ways, different generations are like different cultures. They have different worldviews. They have different ways of thinking, different languages they speak. Different work ethics, ways of dressing, different music. Just like when you go overseas and you visit a different culture, the same is true of people from a different generation. It is a different culture in some ways. And we are dealing with those different cultures all mixed together right now, right here in this building. There are seated here people from different cultures just because of what year it says on your birth certificate. Whole age groups that you and I should care about bringing into the Lord's kingdom, by the way, also live in our community, don't they? That same culture difference. And that's what we're looking at today as we talk about reaching the next generation. That really is an open-ended term, and it describes this process that God has set into place in the church where the current producers work to replace themselves with the ones who are coming behind them, where those who are leading are working to get themselves out of a job because they'll be gone one day, where parents fulfill their role to set the spiritual course for their children. Leaders pour themselves into people who will lead. Folks, the youngest among us cannot possibly do that on their own, amen? They're just trying to get on their feet. They're just trying to figure out what life is about. So it's on us who are supposed to have learned something by this point in our lives to help make sure that this process continues. George MacDonald was 
the Scottish author, a preacher in the 1800s, and he wrote a story called The Seaboard Parish. I quoted from this six months ago when we were talking about this generation thing. Listen to what he wrote a hundred years ago. We have yet a work to do, my friends, but a work we shall never do aright after ceasing to understand the new generation. We are not the men, neither shall wisdom die with us. That's from the book of Job, by the way. The Lord hath not forsaken his people, because the young ones do not think just as the old ones choose. The Lord has, giving some, has given something fresh to tell them and is getting them ready to receive his message. When we are out of sympathy with the young, then I think our work in this world is over. It might end more honorably. Some of today's millennials and some of the Generation Z bunch have a time in their lives that has come to be described as extended or delayed adolescence. Have you heard about that? Those five years or so that just kind of dangle out there that didn't used to exist, and they've got to figure out what to do with them. We observe that, don't we? Parents with kids living in their basements saying, why hasn't this child moved out yet? That's extended adolescence. But guess what? They're not the only ones. You know, with the added healthy years that have been tacked on to the older generations, many people today retire into what has been dubbed second adulthood. Have you heard of that one? You may well live, if you're retired, another 20 or 30 years. Think about that. What are you going to do with those years? A hundred years ago, 60-year-old people didn't have to think about that. But now you do. One of the places we feel the challenges that this creates is in this body called the church. With all of those dynamics going on around us, what should the church look like? How can we make it a place that's relevant and attractive to every person who is reachable for Jesus? I said it several minutes ago, the church belongs to Jesus and it should show his desires. I'm going to repeat that a few times. That's your cue when I do, okay? I want to consider that today in light of Matthew chapter 16. So I'd like you please to, to get your Bibles out. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. There was a specific line here that really jumped out at me as something that we need to give as a baseline as we begin to talk about reaching the next generation in some detail. The setting of Matthew 16 is pretty important. It's a, a point in Jesus' ministry. He's been doing this long enough that it's beginning to gain momentum. His disciples, in fact, have been sent out to preach and to heal people. Jesus has been working miracles. He has healed the blind. He has calmed the stormy sea. He has raised a little girl from the dead. He's casting out demons. He's feeding thousands of people with just a little bit of food. And it's getting harder and harder for his enemies to brand him a nobody. They're becoming more troubled by him. The disciples who are traveling with him are watching all of these miracles. And it's beginning to make some thoughts roll around in their heads. Not only are they watching miracles, but they themselves are being used by God to perform miracles. What would that do in your head? They're traveling 
in the north near Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus invites his disciples to do a mental pause and to reflect on all of these experiences. They are reaching a critical time in their journey with him. Kind of like I think the church of today is reaching a critical time. Jesus often coached conversations by asking questions, which tells me, by the way, that questions are a good thing. Why be afraid of asking questions? Jesus did it a lot. There in verse 18, that's where we're going to start reading, or verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Those are easy questions. Impersonal questions, general questions are easy, aren't they? Because you can just let them be in your head. You don't have to deal with life's issues to answer them just by talking about what everybody else thinks and does. You ever hear questions like that? Well, what if somebody were to and you're actually talking about somebody else. But what Jesus does next brings them to a deeper level of conversation from what do you know to what are your convictions about what you know. You've seen miracles. You've even been used by God to perform miracles. You watched a little girl raised from the dead. Have you given it some thought, guys? You hear what other people think, okay. What do you think? Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? That's not a question. That's the question. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Not what does your grandma believe, what your parents believe, Not, what do most people who attend church think about Jesus Christ? Come to grips with that today. Because if you don't have a good answer for that question right now, okay, will you please at least ask yourself right now, who do you say that Jesus Christ is? No question is more important. Who is Jesus Christ? Peter had the answer. Peter had an answer for everything. But Peter had been putting two and two together. And he understands that Jesus is no ordinary man. Jesus wasn't just some good moral teacher. And even though Peter didn't fully understand what all of it meant, he at least understood who Jesus is. And he answered. Verse 7, let me back it up. Verse 14. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. Sometime previous to this, Jesus had given Peter a new name, Peter the Rock. So there's this play on words here. Your name, Peter, your name is Rock? Well, Rocky, on this rock that you have just described, I'm going to build my church. And for centuries, there have been different ways, four main ones, to try to explain exactly what Jesus meant by this. I don't have the time to go into all of those, but I do want to make some observations here that I think are very important and very clear in this text. Here is the first one. The fact that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah is foundational to following him. All those other ideas that people had about who is Jesus, oh, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, those were mistakes. They were all complimentary. They were all nice descriptions trying to describe Jesus, but they way undershot the truth. There is only one Messiah. There is only one who is God and who is with God, just like it describes him in the opening lines of the Gospel of John. Nobody else has the right to say that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. No one else has the right to say that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him. Peter himself would later write in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus is the cornerstone around which the entire church is being built. The church, the followers of Jesus, are built on that foundational truth of who Jesus is. Not all groups who call themselves churches are careful to teach this. Have you ever seen an entire building taken off of its foundation and moved somewhere else so that it could be useful somewhere else? That gets done from time to time. Have you ever seen that done like when 300 Amish guys pick up a barn and carry it? There's a video of this. 300 sets of legs under that building as those guys move that building somewhere else. Now imagine for a moment taking a huge building like that off of its stone foundation and moving it somewhere else, say, down to the beach and setting it on the sand. What do you suppose would happen to that building? Audience participation? It will wash away. It will crash down. There is... A picture of that, by the way, uh, that happened in, it's the next picture, happened in China while a, a, a building was being built. It had foundation problems, and before it was finished, it collapsed. Same thing happened in India, foundation problem with a building. Building falls over. That's the picture of what happens if the church moves away from this foundational truth about Jesus Christ. When you move the church off of that foundation to put it on something less, it's going to collapse eventually. You see, Jesus took this question about his identity and he made it clear that really following him relies on who he is. So we better get that straight. Maybe today when you're asked 
the question, who is Jesus? You're still wrestling with it? Let me encourage you not to let that scare you away. You're not the first person to wrestle with that, and you need to. Is Jesus the king or not? Here's something else about this text that really jumps out to me that Jesus says, and that is, it's not rocket science, it says Jesus will build his church. Now the Bible uses figures of speech differently in different places, and in this word picture, look at it carefully, Jesus says he is the what? He is the builder of the church. He's going to use people like Peter and others to get that done, but when it's all said and done, Jesus says he is the builder of his church. The builder. A builder. That means that something that wasn't there before is being put together, is being built. And Jesus' church, therefore, is something that is meant to grow and to change, to be built. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, it says this about Jesus. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Look again in verse 18 there, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. Whose church? Jesus' church. That's the third point here. The church belongs to Jesus. Amen? I notice also Jesus claims the church as his own. This is the first time, by the way, that the word church gets used in the New Testament. It literally means, the word means, those ones who are called out. It's used to describe groups of people gathered together on purpose, the called out ones, the church. You see, it's Jesus who called this group of people to be a group. It was Jesus' plan, like we just read, to make one group from those who were Jews and those who were non-Jews so that they could be made right with God. It was Jesus who paid the price for our sin on the cross so that we are not our own, but we have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. It's Jesus who says he will give the keys of his kingdom to Peter. It's Jesus who says he is preparing a place for us. By the way, that's the language that was used of a, of a groom who was for one year getting a place ready before he would be finally married to his bride. It's Jesus who's going to come again to take his bride away to his great wedding feast. The church, God's people here on earth, belong to Jesus Christ. When uh, Jenny and Andy were both pretty young, there were some times where, I know this is hard for you to imagine, but they got into some disputes over ownership of things. They occasionally infringed on one another's turf. 
we had bought these neat little light-up Christmas trees, little rotating light-up Christmas trees. They came in boxes, and we got one for each of them at Christmas times to get out and set up. Well, Jenny wanted to make sure that nobody interfered with her tree ownership. So she got out a Sharpie marker. She wrote across the top of her box something like, this is Jenny's tree, you know, this is mine. Andy, not to be outdone by his older sister, who had just learned to write a couple years before, got out a Sharpie marker and wrote on his box something like, for the orphans. I guess he had to be there. In the church, we have got to get this case of ownership right. I mean ownership of us. Who is the Christ, the Son of God? Jesus. Where did Peter get this idea? Jesus says, not from people, from God. Whose church is it? Who will build the church? Who has authority to give the keys of his kingdom? Whose resurrection from the dead will demonstrate that death has no power over that church? Do you hear a theme here? The point is, when we talk about reaching the next generation, what we, Church of Christ, Christian Church, Christians gathered here together at Central Christian Church, what we're talking about is our role as stewards in an enterprise that isn't our own. Jesus is building that church. It is his project. And that means it must be done by his design according to what he wants because from the beginning to the end, the whole thing is about Jesus. Not me, not you. And we need to remind one another from time to time. Remember it. The church belongs to Jesus and it should show his desires. Amen? This term buy-in that we use is a good thing, I think. We are constantly trying to get members of Central Christian Church to take ownership as a part of this church family that we are a part of. And over the years, it has always troubled me to hear people speak about the church that they are attending in the third person to refer to this church body and say they and them. Do you do that? Instead of saying we and us. That's first person, you see. Are you part of this family or not? Is it they and them or is it we and us? Do you have some personal ownership in this enterprise? Do you have some skin in the game? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that personal ownership is a powerful and important thing. It indicates that what happens here actually is important to you. But the problem with personal ownership is personal ownership. Because the church belongs to whom? Jesus. The way that we relate to God was never supposed to be about us first. What do I need to do to escape hell for me to live forever in heaven? 
for me to have the abundant life now, for me to be helped with my problems, for me to have my prayers answered. Jesus said, if I remember correctly, that to follow him we must deny ourselves. And if I'm only seeking my needs and my desires in this whole thing, then I have forgotten that the church is about Jesus from start to finish. So, working together to reach the next generation doesn't mean that we should sit down and have a discussion about what can we do to get the next generation to come to my church. Remember whose church it is? That ought to make us ask a different set of questions, shouldn't it? If we really direct our attention to Jesus' concern for reaching and growing the next generation, then we can figure out some, we can figure that there are probably going to be some times down the road when we're going to need to look at one another and we're going to need to say to one another, remember whose church it is? Peter had to have that done for him, by the way, a couple times in the future after this. He had to be reminded. I'm thinking that reaching the next generation means that sometimes we're going to need to learn to say things in a certain way. (laughs) Going to have to make some changes to do that effectively. Or we may need to make some changes in our worship time. Or we actually may need to involve ourselves personally with someone from a different generation. Can you imagine? Some of that will be challenging, and we'll have to work to overcome our fear of the church not being like it used to be. And I may not like some of that, but you know what? I sure do like the idea of welcoming people from the next generation into the kingdom of God. Don't you? Church belongs to Jesus. and should show his desires. I think that ultimately that That's the choice that we're faced with as we work to reach the next generation. The question is, will we allow Jesus' desires ahead of our own? If we love Jesus, and if we love those people from the next generation, we will. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that love does not insist on its own way. You know, this culture, this next generation culture, that we're talking about is not some strange indigenous village in South America outside the touch of society. This culture that we're talking about is your children and your grandchildren. It's the young couple that lives across the street. It's the guy who works on your car. It's the nurse who takes your blood pressure, the kindergarten teacher, the waiter, the salesman. They need Jesus, and their culture has not pointed them in the right direction. Will you? There's a place in the Old Testament that talks about this. Of all places in the book of Psalms to talk about the next generation, listen to what it says in Psalm 78. Asaph wrote it. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. 
things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. That's been God's plan all along, that his people would reach the next generation, their children and their children. Paul spelled it out. He said, these things that you have seen in me, he told Timothy, these things that you have seen and and heard from me, these pass along to faithful men who will teach others also. Someone passed those along to us today so that here we are, talking now about what can we do, what will we do to pass them along to the next ones. It starts with this question, who is Jesus Christ? If Jesus is who he claimed to be and this church belongs to him, then this church should be a reflection of his desires. I'm confident to be able to tell you this morning that Jesus Christ desires for you to be a part of his kingdom. If you've never made that decision, if you've never come to grips with this question, this morning is a good time to do that. You can become a part of his kingdom. Here at Central, regardless of what generation you belong to, we understand that Jesus invites you to be part of his church. So this morning, if you're ready to do that, if you're ready to become a follower of Christ, it means acknowledging who Jesus says he is. It means repenting of your old life. It means being baptized underwater and raised up a new person and starting a brand new life in Jesus. If you're ready to make that move, then we're inviting you to do that right now. We're going to have a word of prayer. We're going to sing a song that will kind of wrap things up today. I'm going to be right here at the front. If you're ready to make that choice, then would you come? Let's stand up together. If you're joining us online this morning and that's a decision that you want to make, please let us hear from you. Uh, Please contact us, cccrockford.org slash connect or email to us. Type in on the comments right now on Facebook. Get in touch with us, please, as soon as possible so that we can get back with you as soon as possible. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these simple words from Jesus, short but full of very important meaning for us today. We want to acknowledge that the church belongs to you, that you have entrusted us as stewards of this wonderful project that uh, we are a part of because you've invited us. And Lord, we know that there are others who hear that invitation and would respond if there was just someone taking it to them. 
So I pray today that you'll be at work on our hearts. God, we confess to you that we like things to be comfortable. We like things to be uh, the way that makes us feel cared for and secure. But Lord, I pray that that would be trumped by your desires, your plans. And if that means setting aside anything, Father, find us willing to put it aside so that your church can be what you want it to be. Lord, work in our hearts right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.